If you want to replicate Office working remotely, you probably shouldn't work remotely because you're not leveraging the benefits. The benefits are you can hire people anywhere, you can hire the most talented people in the world, not the most talented person you can afford in the 30 mile radius of your office, and you can put people in a position to do the best work that they've ever done in their lives because they can do their best work, organize life around that, and work when they're most productive. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. All right, welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I'm your host, Alex Sumer, CEO, founder of SaaStock. Delighted to be joined today by Chris Hurd, who is the founder and CEO of FirstBase. Welcome, Chris. Great to be here, Alex. Appreciate your time. Yeah, no, great to have you uh, on, on the podcast. Um, I, th- I think like, certainly like during COVID, uh, you definitely popped up onto my radar and you know, following you on Twitter. And I think you've got a, a very big uh, following, uh, I, I believe in, in, in talking about uh, remote work, which was obviously the, um, the soup du jour, you, you know, kind of during that time, um, and delighted that you, you know, you come on the, uh, uh, the podcast today. So looking forward to our, our conversation. Um, I guess for those, uh, we, like we always start to just get to know you, you a little bit, you know, more as a, as a person before we kind of get into you, you know, as a, as, as a CEO and what first base does, et cetera. Um, but tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, who is Chris Hurd? It's a very different answer today versus three or four years ago. So um, I spent 10 or 12 years as a semi-pro soccer player. Um, as we built the business, had to dedicate all my time to that. And yeah, I think even coming to the um, process of building a company wasn't necessarily straightforward, as it probably isn't for most people. Um, studied architecture, realized pretty early on that a six-year university degree um, isn't a good idea. And I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. And I knew pretty early on, I didn't want to be an architect. So what that actually gave me was the opportunity to sort of free my mind and start to think about the things that I did want to do. And part of that was building a business. Um, When you graduate, you can't do that immediately. You have to work a little bit, worked in the oil and gas industry, learned a ton. Eventually, you come to the realization that working in the oil and gas industry might not be the most intellectually stimulating industry in the world. So I started doing a bunch of things out, out with the nine to five. Um, wrote a big blog, grew about 50,000 people. That connected me with a bunch of interesting people in the UK startup scene, with investors in the US. And then I got to the point where it was like, well, I need to go and do something else. Do I want to go and do an MBA in the States? Do I want to go and work for some of these startups whose founders I've gotten to know, or should I do something else? And the something else was, let's find a business and see where that goes. Very cool. Uh, semi-pro soccer teams, like, was there an aspiration to play for a particular team? There would have been once upon a time, but I think my race was run pretty early on in life. I had a few bad injuries. I got to 16 or 17. And at some point you have the realization that you're not going to be a total pro you're not going to make it to the top of the game and yeah if you start if you keep to chasing that and you don't refocus on academics you probably don't end up in a good place and and given actually like today and, and now is the first time that that we've had a conversation and uh, but obviously I, i've i've seen you uh write on uh on social media uh, i was expecting an american accent but i detect a <laughs> scottish one uh so when is this like did you go over to the u.s and, and do the the mba and you know further your academia or like how did you land in the 
the US? It's a common misconception. Everyone that speaks to me seems to expect me to have a Midwestern accent. And I think that's a product of a few things. You're right. It's probably the social media persona, if you put that in inverted commas. Um, And I have spent a decent amount of time in the States. My wife's American. So though you as a Brit can probably sense the Scottish accent, a bunch of other people aren't necessarily as clear as where it's from. Um, So no, I actually didn't do the MBA. I decided to found the business before we sort of ended up in that direction. Um, And as we start to build the business, it becomes a lot more apparent that if you're in the, the U.S., they're a lot more conducive to risky ventures relative to Europe and certainly the UK. And uh, tell us then just, uh, quickly about, well, First Base, what it does, but w- what's the founding story then? Why were you compelled to build, build this? What was the problem you're solving? So First Base is really straightforward. We make it really easy for companies to provide the tools and equipment their workers need wherever they are. So some people still have the conception that we are the remote company for remote workers, which we were, of course, founded under that guise. Um, But we have clients of all sorts. We have fully remote companies, as you can imagine. We have hybrid companies, and we're starting to see companies that are fully in office as well. Um, In terms of taking a step back, how did we end up there? Um, In many ways, it was a mistake, right? We didn't set out to build that business We were building a financial technology company initially. And at the outset, we made the decision, we need to be a remote company. And the reason for that is all the reasons people have discovered over the last three to five years, we recognize, but there were really three key key things for us. Um, One, as we touched on already, I'm from Scotland. Um, Trying to convince all the world-class people you need to move to Scotland and work in an office in the middle of nowhere. Scotland's a great place. That's a hard sell. So we didn't try and do that. Um, number two, we were a startup. We never had much money. Investing it in real estate seemed like a bad decision. We didn't do that either. And then number three, it was really a quality of life decision for me. I'd miss my kids walking, laughing, talking for the first time. Wanted to be there to see them grow up. Wanted to spend more time with my family. But I wanted to work with the most talented people in the world, and I wanted to do the best work in my life. So naturally, the answer to that is build the company remotely. And as we started to hire people, we ran into all these challenges and obstacles. And something we were particularly passionate about was how do we provide a great experience? How do we make sure people are as safe, comfortable, and productive at home as they were in an office? And as we get on people with calls for the first time after we hired them, we'd see them sitting at their kitchen table. We'd see them sitting at their sofa and we'd say, you you guys don't have monitors, you don't have keyboards, you don't have sort of laptops, um, desks, chairs. And our team would say, you guys shipped us a laptop. We don't have anything else. So we start to supply that. And then essentially one thing leads to another. You realize that that's expensive, time consuming, hard to do. As you become more globally focused, it becomes even harder. Um, and eventually it became obvious that that was actually the problem we should be solving instead. What data can you share about the business? So, um, I, I'm not sure if you said already, but uh, I don't think I heard it in terms of when you actually founded the business to where it is now, like, you know, how big is the company? How many people, you, you know, have you hired? Uh, you've raised capital. I remember, I, th- I feel I uh, remember um, Anderson Horowitz is one of the, uh, your, your investors. Um, um, yeah, tell us a little bit, you know, some metrics to get the, the audience, let, um, let them know. So we founded the initial fintech business in 2018. We made the pivot to first base in September 2019, um, ended 21 under a million dollars in revenue, ended last year comfortably breaking through eight figures in revenue. 
Um, so that's a fairly fast ascent to there relative to the amount of time that we spent. And obviously there's a backstory to that related to how the world changed. Um, in terms of company size, we're just over 100 people. Uh, we've raised $67 million from the likes of Andreessen Horowitz, Kleiner Perkins, and a bunch of other investors. Very cool. Um, and um, I, I, let me just ask then about Andrew, you, you've mentioned two like top tier VCs there uh, in the fundraising process when I, I guess kind of like, did you decide to raise capital? Uh, and then you kind of went out and said, okay, I, I'm going to go to these VCs because, uh, you know, these are the ones that I want. This is my dream cap table. And, you know, these are the ones that I want on the board. Like, how did it work? Because I guess sometimes, obviously, it doesn't always work perfectly. But given that you've got two top tier VCs, you know, just kind of curious to know, was that kind of like the dream and, you know, you ended up landing that? It definitely wasn't. So for us, we've always been very clear in the reason that we raise capital. It's never been a vanity metric. It's never been a sight in their signal for success. Um, and every time we've went out and raised capital, it's because we think there was a bigger opportunity to pour more petrol in the fire. So... Our seed round was about $2 million. We raised that in August 2020. So the whole world had already changed. And we'd seen this massive ascent in terms of the inbound that we'd seen from companies who needed help on the problems that we were solving. So the first signal to pour more petrol on, on, on the fire was that that happened. We need to move faster. We need to close more customers, so on and so forth. So we closed the seed round and we just kept getting to know other investors. And I think for me personally, if you look at what's gone on over the course of the last three to five years, there were a lot of shotgun type wedding relationships in the investment scene. And that was never for us. We always sought partners who didn't see us getting to the finish line or what people perceive to be the finish line of an IPO. We want partners that believe getting there is just another starting line. So as we built those relationships, we got to know A16Z over five or six months. And at some point, the question becomes like, well, we've grown again. We're growing faster. We need more people. We're still seeing all this inbound. We need to catch up sort of thing. More demand than we, we know what to do with. Um, so that was a signal to do the Series A. More peril in the fire again. Build the sales team. Start to build some outbound motion um, and move forward. Um, and again, copy paste for the Series B. Um, we wanted to build relationships. Kleiner Perkins, we got to know almost immediately after closing our Series A. Fast forward four or five months, the opportunity to say, okay, well, let's move faster again was was there. So I think that's somewhat unique in many ways. And I think, like I said up front, a bunch of companies don't necessarily do it for that reason. Personally, I think those are the right reasons. So yeah, I guess kind of given the nature of when you started the company and what the company does, that COVID would have had uh, you know material impact in the the, the growth of the business. Hence, uh, I, I guess the, the couple of rounds that you did with A16Z and, and Kleiner Perkins during that time uh, to help put fuel on the fire. Now, kind of post COVID, so I mean, well, I'm interested to learn a little bit about like operationally how you you know uh, how that impacted first base and and you in a, i guess sort of rapidly scaling business and the demand that you probably had during that time <clears throat> now you know covid is over we're in this kind of hybrid back to the office but also you know a highly accelerated remote uh, work world as well um how has this all now uh, i guess the current state you know impacted the business and uh, just interested to see over the course of like last sort of three years that that shift. Do you you know is it that 
you know, the continued uh, growth and, you know, uh, I guess kind of great demand? Has, is there been any kind of drop, drop off, uh, et cetera? Uh, just keen to know. It's a great question. I, I think like always worth acknowledging the fact that COVID accelerated the trend we were betting on by 10 or 15 years overnight. That being said, take a step back. Look between 2008 and 2018, remote work had grown 400% in the US to 3.5 million people. And the projections were, if that held and it looked like they were, there were going to be 30 million remote workers by 2030. Um, And you can build a generation-defining business that operationalized distributed work just targeting that. Again, COVID happens, 10 or 15-year acceleration. Go forward to now, those 30 million people are already here. That's roughly how many people are working remotely, if not full-time, most of the time. And now, by 2030, we're going to have 75, 80 million remote workers globally. So the market's at least tripled. Um, We've had this huge acceleration, and it's still there, right? The companies that are leaning into it are still leaning into it hard. I think more companies are leaning into it harder than the general population realizes because a bunch of companies are saying one thing to the press while doing something on the other side. I think if you look at a lot of these return to office mandates, companies have been extremely aggressive. That hasn't played out. If you speak to them, if they tell you the truth, they'll tell you that occupancy daily is somewhere between 10 and 20%, and they'll tell you it's the same 10 or 20%. So that doesn't mean these mandates have happened and more people have rushed back. It means that the people that never wanted to work remotely in the first place are still not working remotely, and that's never going to change. So I think distributed work, remote work, working best actually isn't work from home on its own. It's work from anywhere. It's how can we put individuals in the best position to exceed wherever they want to work from. Second part of the question is, what was the impact on first base? Pre-COVID, we'd had five, 600 companies inbound to learn more about what we were doing. That was awesome. Our product wasn't ready. So COVID happens, we rush the product out the, out the, out the door. Over the course of the next two or three years, we're flooded with as much demand as any company's probably ever seen in history. And I mean 12, 15,000 inbound companies, all of whom have the problem or have some semblance of the problem. So all that's played out. We're now back to a place where people can work in office if they want to. Certainly some companies are back. Most companies are working some form of sometime in the office, sometime not in the office. And a huge number of more companies are fully remote. Um, The challenge with hybrid is even companies that want to go back more than they have actually went back now don't have enough footprint. So they're still struggling with the same problems that we solve. And I think the one thing worth calling out as well, and this is a big caveat on our business model, um, is famously we're looked at as being the remote company for remote workers before the world went remote. That's great. What we actually realized during the course of the world going remote is that everyone's struggling with the same problem. So it's not like we're predicated on the world being fully remote. We're not predicated on it being hybrid. We're not predicated on it being fully in office. So it's just about do people have the pain that we have? We think they do. Um, The market has obviously went through a lull. There's been sort of a 2021 startup bubble bursting. That has an impact on every type of startup. Um, fortunately, we diversified a little bit and we don't just sell startups. So if that market slows down, we generally see acceleration in other areas. Cool. Makes sense. Uh, and thanks for sharing that. And so I, I guess, and then from learning, uh, you, you know, what you've just kind of talked about, um, 
want to like dive a little bit deeper into maybe like not necessarily how to make remote work work, but make remote uh, work from anywhere uh, work, right? Because I, I guess like uh, you, you know, I, I'm seeing what you just described in that. Um, there are a ton of uh, 100% remote companies um, and a lot more. Uh, it feels that most companies that I speak to are going back into the office kind of one or two days a week, but actually not, you know, 10 or 20% of people are going back and there's a struggle and like, you know, like why, why are people not going back in on mandatory days and, and, and things like that? So I'll, I'll go into like maybe a, a couple of issues, but I guess kind of f first off, um, uh, maybe, maybe just around purely sort of like remote work. So I was, I was uh, timely listen, listening to a podcast, uh, I think it was yesterday actually, my, my trip to Dublin, where Alex McCaw, who's the founder of Clearbit, he's now doing a, a company called Reflect um, uh, and living on a boat and working from anywhere. So he, he's, he's, he's apparently built a boat, uh, sailing in the Atlantic, has got Starlink and uh, work, working uh, from there. Uh, he's now obviously well. He's got a three-person uh, company, so uh, clearly he's he's working remotely, and they don't have any meetings, and it's all uh, asynchronous. Uh, but he did mention there was a comment there that I picked up on, um, where he said like he doesn't believe that if you're building a venture-backed company, that you can uh, uh, do that uh, as a remote business. That for a venture-backed company, that you need to be in you know in person. You need to you need in person for trust. You need to break bread with people. What, what are your thoughts around that uh, sort of statement, given that you're venture-backed as well? Yeah, um, I, I would say we clearly aren't working in that model, and then it's up for people to debate whether that's working or not, right? Like, I, I think people can have their opinions, but I think the fact is this is playing out very clearly for a bunch of companies in that it's working. Now, anytime there's anything new, there's always going to be doubt. There's always going to be some people that don't trust it. I think that's totally fine. Innovation across history has been filled with times where people thought things would be one way and then something newer emerges. So the horse to the car to airplanes, so on and so forth. Like innovation, that is the classic innovator's dilemma. Um, now, right now, there's still a visualization from a lot of leaders, particularly middle managers, particularly older people who are struggling with this. They don't know how to operate. It's not the same as what they know in office. They're, they're lacking the command and control type um, ability to influence people. And they still judge performance based on how long someone's sitting in a seat. Now, some people might have the view, well, in a startup, that's what's necessary. I would have a slightly different view, which is if you're incredibly clear on what outcomes you need to hit, is time a metric or do you just care what someone produces? So I think that's the first part. Like, Distributed companies need to be crystal clear on the outcomes that they need to choose. The second part is, if they're going to try and operate in the way that they would have in office, probably not going to work, right? Like, synchronous work is really hard if people are in different time zones. Now, if you want to replicate office working remotely, you probably shouldn't work remotely because you're not leveraging the benefits. The benefits are you can hire people anywhere. You can hire the most talented people in the world, not the most talented person you can afford in the 30 mile radius of your office. Um, and you can put people in a position to do the best work that they've ever done in their lives because they can do their best work, organize life around that and work when they're most productive. So if I hire someone as a CEO and they do their best work from 5 a.m. till 11 a.m., they then take two hours off in the afternoon to cycle a bike, they do something else and then they come back online from 3 to 8 p.m. Why would I stand in the way of that? Doesn't make any sense, right? And especially if you look at the knowledge-based economy, which arguably 
every tech business is in. A um, bunch of other industries, they're also in that industry now. The most talented company wins. And if you want to hire the most talented people, you need to meet them where they are. Um, the vast majority of people never want to go back to an office again full time. So if you put yourself in a position where you're saying, this is the only thing that we're going to do, how can you, by definition, be the most talented company? Makes make, makes sense. And I think there's got to be a lot like, obviously, treating people like adults, right, and, and giving them the, the trust. And I think, as you say, the, 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 the big thing sort of picking up from that is like, look, I mean, if they're doing their best work and it's deep work and it's from home and they're hitting results, like, why does it matter like where they are or what you know what they're doing or how many hours they're working do they have to work eight nine hours or you know could they be doing four or five um like what what i've seen and like in, in terms of these are some like personal uh uh experiences uh but like from uh my own company but other companies as well that uh, obviously we've got a lot of exposure to SaaS startups uh, in terms of the issues, uh, uh, often they seem to be around like culture and burnout uh, in this kind of work from anywhere sort of hybrid hybrid world, right? And so, like certainly uh, during COVID and when we all of a sudden transitioned to 100% remote because we had no other choice, um, and we were also you, you know kind of backs to the wall uh, and all hands to the pump because for us as a business, you, you know, we went from organising large in-person gatherings, uh, you know, the SaaS conference in Dublin. Uh, to virtual conferences and virtual events and doing those like, almost every week and it, you know it was certainly over, overkill um and uh I, I during that time i think uh, for obvious reasons and given COVID, covid was going on we we struggled to adapt to like you, you know the culture like with the we, well, we saw the change for the culture of the business to you know uh, to the negative uh, and then you know there was a lot of burnout and that was the kind of really the first time that we started to experience that and see that uh, within the business um, and I think sort of like even now uh, and certainly things improved and we've actually uh, moved to like a four-day work week six months of the year but so five months uh, the, the other six months of the year we go to five days because when when we're uh, near the time of our conferences uh, we've just got a, a lot to do and we need the we, we feel we need those extra days of uh, productivity um, and those are some of the things that we, well one of the things that we've done to kind of help there but uh, still in the the hybrid world where we're pretty much in the office one day a week um it's supposed to be two but really the reality is it's one day a week my feeling is that the culture uh is still not what it was as when we were four days a week in the office sort of pre-covid uh and the the the, the topic of burnout is you know something that is not almost ever present but it comes up you, you know kind of like every now and then a bit like a roller coaster uh, and I imagine you've probably seen this more than uh, not necessarily within your own company, but given that you, you know you've got so many thousands of companies uh, uh, that you're looking at this probably more more than most. Um, I guess the, the the question is like, how do you adapt and optimize culture, you know, uh, for remote work and uh, also like around burnout? You know, what are the things that you see uh, around that to to help uh, avoid it? I guess. Yeah. So burnout's an interesting thing because what you hear from some people is. We can't trust people to work remotely because they're not going to work hard enough. And all evidence is they're working too hard and they're burning out. <laughs> so like, how can you have it both ways? They're either not working hard enough, in which case the evidence is clear that they're not burning out, or they're working too hard and they're working too many hours and they're burning out. So the first part is like, well, you can't have your cake and eat it. Either works or it doesn't. If they're work working out, like if they're burning out, the question is actually, how do we stop them burning out? And that is just being more purposeful around are people taking enough time off? 
Um, do we make it acceptable to sign out because there is less of a, li- a line between work and life? So I think that's the first part. And there's some um, process things that companies can put in place to help that. Um, and I think GitLab and Darren Murph in particular spend a decent amount of time. Um, Darren, when he was at GitLab, sorry, wrote, spent a, bit, a decent amount of time writing about this. Um, now, the second part on culture, again, I think this is one of the famed tropes used to try and put remote work and distributed work down. And I think some ways, my experience, the things I've seen in the companies I work with, isn't that remote work destroys culture. In many ways, it reveals it. And what I mean by that is that culture in office is there. It happens, you experience it, you're part of it, and you can't avoid it. It just is. It's ephemeral. Um, it ch- it's changes, and it's maybe harder to change over time, but it's inarguable that it exists. In a remote world, that isn't the same case. You do need to be a lot more purposeful. You need to be explicit in saying like, well, actually, team, we do need to spend some time on communication and collaboration skills. Otherwise, they might deteriorate. And if they deteriorate, we're not going to be as productive and effective and efficient as we need to be. So I think it's important to also say that being a distributed company, being fully remote, shouldn't mean that you never spend time together in person. Time together in person is critical. For me, I'm not as focused on culture, I actually care a lot more about community because I think it's more inclusive. And I think then you need to start to realize that culture is very different to an office and that's neither good or bad. I think a lot of people still have good experiences of the office. I would say they're overly positive just based on the fact we had a two or three year pandemic in there where people never really seen other people, which is a big problem. It wasn't just colleagues, it was friends, family, it was travel, it was restaurants, it was everything else. So I think now that we're through that, people can spend more time with their families. They can travel more. They have connection outside of work as well, which I think is really, really important. And then the piece that comes after is, okay, well, assuming we are a remote company, how can we be purposeful about this? How frequently do we need to come together in person? What do we need to do when we do come together in person? And then I think you can start to broader the aperture and say, well, what does this give us in terms of benefit that an office doesn't give us? And potentially what it gives companies is access to a more diverse company, right? It's not just we can hire people that can attend an office. It's not just people that are comfortable working in an office. Certain demographics have obviously been the beneficiaries of that over time. It becomes, actually, can we hire single parents? Actually, can we hire people with health conditions or impairments who can't work in an office? And I think as you start to paint the picture of culture, diversity should be an, an integral part to that. And again, not better, but different. Okay, I'm going to move into uh, the quick-ish fire round uh, now, Chris, uh, uh, as, as I'm sort of conscious of time. Um, uh, what one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career? Writing. Uh, well, certainly it's uh, how I first uh, uh, got to uh, hear of you. Um, what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, probably early in my life from my dad. He always said, treat people the way you want to be treated and work as hard as you can, so... Very simple, very British. <laughs> simple, but very good advice. Um, what's the biggest failure you've made and lesson learned? I think there's always reflections to learn on. I'll, I'll take a recent one. I, I think given the way the macroeconomic trends shifted over the course of the last 12 years, we weren't quick enough to realize that our initial ICP and target ICP was starting to change. And if we changed earlier, I think we'd have grown even faster. What's the hardest thing about building a work from anywhere uh, business? 
The hardest thing is purpose. Like everything has to be a conscious choice. Otherwise it doesn't happen. Like in office, spoke about this a minute ago, like you can just experience the office. Remote doesn't happen like that. If you don't push every day, sometimes things don't go forward. What, do, what does your daily routine look like? And does it include two hour bike rides? <laughs> um, it does not. My, my day looks very different depending on what day it is. So because I have a bunch of the team in the US, I get all my focused work done in the morning. I have some external meetings early afternoon and then into the evening, I'll have my US based meetings. And yeah, I try and get a bike ride in, but usually it's about 15, 20 minutes as opposed to two hours. What do you do to unwind from work or can you? I read a lot. What are you currently reading? Magic words, Jonah Berger. Okay. I don't know that one, but we'll look it up. Um, that was the end of the quickish fire round. Thanks for that, uh, uh, Chris. Uh, uh, just to kind of wrap up, uh, where can people find uh, you online? So where are you most active? I'm, I'm, I might guess it might be Twitter, but uh, I don't know if that's changed since Elon uh, is there and uh, your, your thoughts on that. Uh, and um, uh, also first base, where if they want to learn more, where do they go? Yeah, I'm at Chris underscore Heard on Twitter, Chris Heard on LinkedIn. You'll see me with a pink background um, on some social media platform and FirstBase is at FirstBase.com. Very good. Well, Chris Heard, CEO, founder of FirstBase, thanks so much for coming on the SaaS Revolution show today. Really appreciate you sharing your your uh, your lessons and um, uh, thoughts on uh, working from anywhere and, and congrats on uh, uh, building a great business. Thanks for that, Alex. Appreciate your time. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaSdoc conferences around the world. Want exclusive SaaS content and actionable insights to grow your SaaS? Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at sasdoc.com.